Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Generally, when you're talking about media or when you're talking about advertising, you are talking about an emotional journey above all. You know, when you watch television, you're watching for an emotional gratification. So we're talking about fundamentally understanding people's emotional encounters with with different types of content. The problem that we have had historically as an industry is that we are relying on what people tell us about those emotional journeys, whether that's in a focus group, in an interview, on a survey. All of this is still dependent upon a person saying, you know, something about how they feel or how they're experiencing it. The problem is people lack access to their own emotional journeys. So what a person is telling you when you ask them a question like that is the rational interpretation of what they think they must be feeling which is not the same thing. Welcome back. I hope you've had a fantastically awesome week so far. If you haven't listened yet to my recent conversations with Trey Taylor, author of the book, A CEO Only Does Three Things, and with Janet Neal of Superb Woman and Next Steps Navigation, why not? Seriously, though, go check them out after you've listened to today's conversation. I'm really excited to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest today, Dr. Duane Voran, CEO of Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the past decade was first tested by Media Science. Duane is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Australian Prime Minister's Award for University Teacher of the Year. In four of the past six years, articles authored by Duane have been awarded as either Article of the Year or runner-up by the Advertising Research Foundation. Duane is a pioneer in neuromarketing regularly introducing new methods incorporating eye tracking, galvanic skin response, heart rate, EEG, facial expression analysis, response latency testing, and a wide variety of other methods. My scientific mind is going nuts here. He's also CEO of HeartConnect, the most advanced platform for qualitative research. In our conversation today, Duane talked to me about the real estate of the mind. We talked about how all content takes us on an emotional journey. 
and we talked about innovative ways to measure attention, emotion, engagement and memory. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Dr. Duane Varan. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast from Perth in Western Australia, Dr. Duane Varan, who's the CEO of Media Science. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Duane. It's a great privilege to have you here as my guest. Yeah, it's a joy. It's a joy. Glad to be here. Now, you are a, a media expert. You've had an academic career in business school on all things media, and now you've transitioned into industry, leading a research firm that's that's world-leading in the area of audience research. So I'm really looking forward to learn both about the topic of audience research and, and the science behind what you do, as well as growing that business, because I know there's lots of interesting stories you have on that. Before we dig into those things, I'd like to ask all my guests about the impact they're having in the world. So what impact are you having in the world? Well, <laughs> I mean, you could talk about impact different ways. Um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, innovation um, in the TV advertising space, we are the leaders. Every single major innovation in the industry over the past decade, you know, all the main things that have been happening in the TV advertising industry, uh, we've done the first study for all of them, whether it be picture in picture, uh, whether it be uh, limited interruption, whether it be pause ads, um, you know, so we've developed quite a reputation for being a step ahead, which has been great. Um, if it's in terms of publications, which is not a typical, that's academic speak, that's not industry yeah. speak. But in the last uh, published um, poll uh, article, which reviewed the past decade, you know, I, I, I was really surprised. I ranked seventh in the world overall, which was great, a great surprise, but even more impressive. Uh, they also rank universities, and we worked out that if media science was a university, we would rank seventh in the world um, in terms of the advertising disciplines, in terms of our publications activity. So that's that's unusual for uh, an industry uh, player, you know. Um, and then, of course, you can talk about it in terms of the impact we have for our clients. And, and there's lots of examples of where we have um, saved or made um, literally hundreds of millions of dollars for our clients. Um, so, you know, we have an impact uh, on the financial bottom line. And I think for the viewing experience, there's a lot of things that we've done that have really helped the viewer ultimately have a better, um, you know, have a better experience on their, on their TV. So, so there's different ways, I think, that, 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 that we've had an impact. Um, I, I love the fact that you asked that question, Jürgen, because for me as an academic and an industry, the thing that I found most gratifying about research is that sense of impact. So, um, so definitely a, an important priority. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember back in the days when I was in academia um, and possibly the first time around was when I was studying um, in graduate school in chemistry. And as I think everyone does during their graduate career, probably questions, why am I doing this? Because things started to get a bit uh, tough. Why am I doing this and, and who's this going to benefit apart from me personally? Um, and I struggled a little bit with an answer to that, but then it really hit home to me after I'd been out in, in industry for five or seven years and returned to academia for a little while. And then I realized that this just wasn't 
benefiting anyone. It was really just paying paying me a wage, and and even that wasn't that attractive. So um, I pulled the consequences of that very quickly. But yes, uh, you know, we all have this need to feel as though we're actually making a contribution as well as just earning a living, right? Uh, for sure, for sure. It is a gratifying experience. Um, you, just to give you an example, whenever I go to a hotel room anywhere in the world and I turn on the television and I see the news, wherever it is, you know, I see the little uh, ticker at the bottom of the news. And it used to be that that ticker was a crawl. So it used to be that the news would kind of like crawl across the bottom of the screen. We did research which found that it was far more effective for that to update. So instead of the text going across the screen, having it appear and disappear and appear and disappear. Um, and, and when we did that, we found out that there was benefits for the ticker, for the news, for the advertising. I mean, for everything, it was beneficial. Um, and then, you know, some of our leading clients began doing it and others emulated what our clients did. And now it's become global practice. So every time I check into a hotel and I watch the news and I see that ticker at the bottom of the screen, I have this personal feeling of gratification, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like I've done something small that I can see, you know, where I can see its effect anywhere in the world. And, and, and there are lots of studies like that where we've done things which have, have impacted industry practice. So it feels good. That's, you know, that's where you really want to feel like the work that you do matters. Mm, that's uh, really fascinating. And um, it's nice to kind of actually see it in action in, in a public space where you're almost an observer then, but you know the background. Very true. Very true. Very true. Mm. Okay, the um, you've talked, you've given us a couple of examples there of of um, some of the things you've looked into in terms of their effect in advertising. I guess, although the, the news example is a little different, I'd I'd probably look at all of those things and say it's all about capturing someone's attention and getting their interest. So, tell us a little bit more about how you. How you study that? You know, what, what is it that will get someone's attention? What is it that will capture their interest in a way that then gets that message, whatever that message might be, into their mind and gets them to take some action? So, <laughs> like, like the true academic roots that I have, um, uh, when we say attention, that it's a very loaded term, actually. Um, <laughs> We've, we've done a lot of work on attention. Um, you know, one of the coolest studies that we've done more recently was a huge project that we did for Google. And we did this in collaboration with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia. And um, the, the question was, what is attention and how do you measure it? Mm. And um, when we talk about attention, um, actually what we really mean is the absence of inattention. Um, attention is a strange variable because more attention is not necessarily better. So attention is like a threshold which you have to cross. And once you cross it, it's about a lot of other things. Um, but if you don't have attention, then you've got a problem. And so it's unlikely that a program or an ad will have much impact if you don't have attention. But just because you have attention, it doesn't mean diddly squat. It just means that you don't have inattention which means that now there's a chance for everything else to start weaving its magic. Um, and, and, and that's a really, really important. And in fact, there's not one kind of attention. There's actually many different kinds of attention. 
And there's a lot of, I think, uh, deceptive understandings or, or uninformed understandings around thinking about things like, you know, that attention is visual attention. Well, that's one form of attention. But just because you're not looking on screen doesn't mean that you're not paying attention. So, so we've, we've done a lot of work trying to understand attention better. And um, we have a really good grip on inattention. And that's normally what we're looking for. Have we got above that inattention threshold? And then once we have, then it's about a lot of other things. But that's certainly the starting point. That's the starting threshold, which, uh, which you need to get past before anything else can happen. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And, and in, in your studies on attention, let's say, to use that very loose term, um, have you formed any opinion or, or have you got any data that tells or informs us what is good in terms of attention, what, what's less good if you've got someone's attention. And I'm thinking, you know, it occurred to me while you were telling the story before about the ticker on the bottom, and I thought, I wonder if you've done research on this one as well. Um, There's several apps um, for the local TV stations where you can watch TV shows on demand later on, so they're streamed. Um, But they run advertisements in those streamings, and when it's... So the streaming of the show is quite smooth when it hits the advertisement it kind of pauses and it just stuck there for a moment and there's no way of getting out of it and if you back play backwards to replay the last section of the show of course it gets to the advert again and and stops so i'm thinking that that's got to be negative for whatever advertisement comes because the person is getting there and saying i'm really annoyed by this i certainly yeah it's it's a good point it's a very good point um you know, after um, attention, probably the next um, hoop that you have to jump through is um, is valence. So valence is kind of like, are people positive or negative? You're going to see mm. a lot of other measures coming up. You want to know if those are telling you that the person is kind of like happy about what they're seeing or mad about what they're seeing. Yeah. Um, and so so then you kind of jump through. What's, what's remarkable about attention, though, is how fast people form an opinion. Um, mm. You know, there is a... You know, we as, as humans, we are designed to filter out information. We're very efficient at filtering out information. We have a, a real aptitude for it because we have so much information that we're exposed to constantly. I mean, as a species that we're constantly having to filter out things that are not relevant. And so in our research, we've demonstrated that with an ad, people make a go, no go decision in some cases within half a second. So within Mm -hmm. half a second of the ad starting, and that's probably a situation where they know the ad, they've seen the ad a million times, they know the brand, you know, or, or even just generally that, oh, that's an ad. And so people make that decision to tune out incredibly quickly. Um, so there is a, uh, there is a challenge there for advertisers to get, you know, to jump through that hoop and get past that bar. Mm, That's fascinating. And, um, I guess it's, pretty important there from the advertiser's point of view to get that um, attention plus the positive valence, if you like, in the first 30 seconds or 15 seconds. But then how does how does the advertiser continue to get a really clear message across? Well, so it's in the first four seconds, just to, to clarify. So we give it a four <laughs> okay. second window. We, we can yeah. tell whether an ad will succeed or I should, I should rephrase that. We can tell whether it will fail 
if it fails to fire up in the first four seconds. So that's the first thing. But then what it does after that, there's no one answer to that, Jurgen, because it depends on the communication objectives. So a marketeer obviously has a sales objective. You know, they want to sell more product. They, they have a strategy towards achieving that. Marketing is a part of that strategy. Within that messaging, they will have communication objectives. Um, and what's important is for them to know whether or not they're delivering against those communication objectives. Their strategy may be flawed. They won't know unless they know whether or not they're effectively meeting their objectives. If they're effectively meeting their objectives and they still fail, well, then you have to, re you, you have to relook your strategy. But if, um, if you're not delivering against your objectives, then you have a problem in execution. And in most cases, that's, that's actually where the problem is. Um, so you, you, you know, it's not going to be the same for every brand. Um, some brands want you to really think about something. They make a claim and they want you to evaluate it. Other, other uh, uh, brands are trying to get you to feel uh, or to try to remember something or just to get you to laugh so that you have a positive association with the brand. I mean, every brand has a different set of objectives around what they're trying to achieve. Hmm. And I but guess attention is going to be common to all of them. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's important that kind of the consistency of message and consistency with brand and and like I can imagine big items people aren't going to make a decision just seeing one advertisement to or what the first four seconds of an ad yes I'm going to purchase that particular item it's probably a series of advertisements and more and more information and, and kind of a, essentially a relationship grows with that brand yeah, it's actually um, trickier than it, it looks. Um, and, and the reason is because at the end of the day, um, brand building, branding is about um, real estate of the mind. And so if you think about a category, what are the brands that you remember? What are the brands that are available to you hmm. mentally? And um, there will be a repertoire of a few and they'll be there. But you know, it's not like if you own 30% of that real estate versus 28 for the second or 26 for the third, that if you're, if you're getting 28 or 26, that that means that you've got, uh, almost the same probability. It's a winner take all kind of like proposition. People will generally go with the brand which dominates their, um, that, that real estate. Um, so it's, it's important for a brand to have a strategy, which is about delivering a home run, not about delivering a first base. Um, so it's uh, it's a challenge for for, for brands to, to really um, get their marketing right. There's, there's just not a lot of value in being second best. You really have to kind of like figure out how you're going to, for a consumer, doesn't mean that for everybody you've got to be number one, mm. but for some consumers you've got to be number one for, for you to really have an impact. Yeah, okay. And I guess to me it says... I mean, I'm thinking of the Nike example and, and I was thinking about, well, storytelling is really important here. So there's a story that's embedded in most people's mind about Nike and uh, they might have a vision of, of um, a different um, advertisement that they've seen or something that they've read. And at the moment they're in a shoe store or they're online shopping for shoes that will pop into their mind out of out of the depths of the unconscious so that's that real estate you're talking about 
Yeah, you know, if, if you buy an, uh, a $200 Nike shoe, it probably costs $10 to make, <laughs> right? Um, what you're paying for above all, I, I don't know if it costs $10, I mean, I'm just making that up, but, you know, of the relative value, it's the branding, which is delivering mm -hmm. the, the lion's share of the value of that, of that shoe. Um, wearing a Nike shoe means something to you above all, because it's a mm. Nike and that, 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 that brand, that logo means something. And that meaning is, is what we're talking about when we're talking about branding. Mm. Yep. So there's a promise there. So you two could be like Michael Jordan or whoever the, the sports person was that was advertising it. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, mm. um, oftentimes people say that like, like it's not a value proposition. It is a value proposition. Mm. Um, and it, and it's an expensive value proposition for Nike as well. I mean, Nike has to spend, you know, the same way that they might spend money on a plant, you know, the same way they might spend money on, on research for the shoe itself or whatever. They're also having to spend money on de de developing the campaign that positions the brand so that it has that system of meaning associated with it. So it's, it's a real value proposition. It's not like you're paying for vapor or for nothing. You are paying for something and it's something that was expensive to make. It's just a different process of manufacturing then. So it's not, it's not a, it's not the same kind of physical, tangible thing that we think of with a, a plant or a manufacturing facility, but it's still doing the same thing, which is it's creating that value. It's creating that system of meaning. Mm, yeah. And it's creating some value in the mind of the owner of the shoe, right? Because they feel good about themselves. And well, the owner of the shoe and the other people who they interact with who see the shoe and, and associate the shoe a particular way. Yeah. All right. Well, you talked about the costs involved in developing a branding like that. And, and then, of course, the business needs to communicate the message associated with that brand through its advertising, through its marketing, through its sales. And having spent money on that, they're probably wondering, what's working and what's not working. So tell us a little bit about some of the things you do, because this is your area of specialty, right? Some of the things you do to actually bring measures into play to find out what works and what doesn't work or what works well and what works less well in this particular area. Yeah, so I think there's two things that we do above all. So the first is, as you say, measuring for whatever, you know, measuring against the variables. Um, what makes us a little different is that um, uh, generally when you're talking about media or when you're talking about advertising, um, you are talking about an emotional journey above all. You know, when you watch television, you're watching for an emotional gratification, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so we're talking about fundamentally understanding people's emotional encounters with, with different types of content. The problem that we have had historically as an industry is that we are relying on what people tell us about those emotional journeys, whether that's in a focus group, in an interview, on a survey. All of this is still dependent upon a person saying, you know, something about how they feel or how they're experiencing it. The problem is people lack access to their own emotional journeys. So what a person is telling you when you ask them a question like that is the rational interpretation of what they think they must be feeling, 
which is not the same thing. Hmm. And so what we have gotten very good at is we have gotten very good at measuring that emotion directly instead of being dependent upon the person to tell us. So we do that through physiological measures, direct measures of their emotion. So we look at their galvanic skin response. That tells us a lot about the intensity of their reaction to the content. We look at their um, uh, uh, heart rate data, which tells us a lot about their attention. We look at their facial muscle movement. People who are born blind at birth display exactly the same emotional gestures as everybody else. Your emotions are hardwired to your face. And so you can detect that emotion by analyzing that muscle movement. And so we use cameras that are aimed at the face to basically um, decipher and, 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 and estimate the muscle movement that's occurring associated with different key muscles on the face. Um, we track eye movement. So we have uh, special cameras that, that cast uh, infrared cameras that cast a reflection off your, your eyes so that we can actually look and see and, and model out what you're looking at on screen. Um, these are the kinds of tools, response latency. We look at the speed of the, of your response. Um, you know, if I say Volvo in safety, you'll respond faster to the question than if I say Volkswagen in safety. You have to think a little bit longer about whether those two things go together. So we can use the speed of your responses. So these are the kinds of measures that we use to better understand, particularly the emotional dimensions. Um, things like memory, we can use surveys for things like, um, your attitudes. But to get to the emotional encounter, we really need those kind of measures. And then the other thing that we specialize in is really innovation. And we do that, you know, we talked at the start of the, the podcast about that a little bit, but we have software engineers who build prototypes for things. So we're often testing things that don't even exist yet in the world that are just ideas that a client might have. And they want to know if this was built, if they did invest all the money in, 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 deplo in um, deploying something like that. What would the potential impact be? So we're constantly testing, um, you know, new things and, and new formats uh, to see which ones are duds. And, and, and it's a win if you know that it's not going to work because then you don't spend all that money going after something mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's going to fail on the market ultimately. Yeah. And, and the measuring tools that you described or the measuring techniques you described are probably really good ways to test that without spending a lot on, um, testing things out in in real life where you've got to buy expensive advertising time and then um, get an idea of well usually usually they're lagging indicators aren't they because they well and, how many and sales came about from that campaign that's right and and the other thing is that it's um it's they're deep measures so you end up with very 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 precise measures which allow us to get to the why much better so they're, they're very powerful, um, new measures that are, that are, you know, available in the market now. So it's exciting in that sense in terms of what we can do. Hmm. So there are people who are really good at reading faces, reading expressions, reading eyes. And I'm guessing that they have simply developed the, some of these techniques that you described, like muscle or skin tone changes, um, to a, an extent that they're really good at observing them. Um, you're using technology and, and cameras and so on. Um, do you then have people analyzing all the film material that you produce or is there um, something more sophisticated involved? Um, I mean, you're right. It is a trainable skill. Um, you can actually do uh, courses that teach you and train you 
in how to look for those um, underlying muscles and to kind of like uh, interpret and code what they mean. Um, of course, that's what the technology does for us. In fact, um, when we validate these systems, we actually have trained coders who, who code up a reference library and we test the systems against the coders and the technology has to beat human coders. So that's our, that's our yardstick is it has to be better than what, than what, um, human coders could have done. Um, but, but we do do that all the time. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, that, that's, 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 that's kind of our core business is, is being able to get those metrics, um, through technology. Hmm. Great. And if I'm understanding this correctly, essentially you have a laboratory and you bring people into that laboratory, you show them things and measure their response to the things that they see or hear. Um, how, how has, um, you know, the pandemic, uh, the lockdowns, the social distancing that we're all experiencing, how's that impacted how you do that work? Well, that's a great point. So, um, you are right in that a lot of the work that we do is in lab, but not all of the work that we do. We do have an in-home panel with biometrics as well. So there is work that we do with people where we get those measures um, in home, but not all of them. For example, we don't get the eye tracking uh, measure. Uh, there are people who claim webcams can do eye tracking. We do not believe that we do. Our own validation efforts have found that's a very questionable proposition. Um, so, you know, we don't do all of our measures in home, but, but a lot of them we can do. Like we can get the heart rate, the galvanic skin response, those kind of measures. Um, but, uh, we also have other services that we provide. So for example, a lot of the things that we've talked about that we do with media science, we have a spinoff that is called Heart Connect, which is, um, you know, our, our qualitative research product. Um, and Heart Connect can be done using Zoom, you know, style, uh, focus groups, uh, you know, virtual focus groups and um, interviews. And, and so a lot of the technologies that we've talked about, we also bring into, into other environments, uh, you know, whether that be qualitative and in home and even in lab, we do do the work in lab still. We have done a fantastic job in responding to the pandemic. It was a big challenge. It was a massive challenge and we had to redesign how we collect our data and the huge innovations that we came up with to respond to it. We've really created in the lab an environment where our respondents come in and they self-administer the experiment. And I can't tell you how challenging it was for us to get our protocols and our technology to the point where that was feasible, but, but we have done that. So for example, our eye tracking systems right now, that, that required very intimate contact with people. And now we have put that technology on special camera mounts so that it's all controlled remotely. So the research assistant now is doing the calibration and the adjustment you know, no longer kind of like an intimate contact with the person, but the person is sitting in a cubicle and they're adjusting it remotely. And, and, and we've done that around um, all our protocols now so that the contact with people um, coming in is actually quite minimal. Um, you know, we had to redesign our labs as well around kind of like um, traffic choke points in the building and things like that. But those were all changes that we made very quickly to respond to the pandemic. So where a lot of our competitors either went out of business or temporarily mothballed their operations. You know, we, we had a period of about uh, two months where we were completely shut down, but we have, and, and we don't operate with the same capacity for sure because of the social distancing requirements. Mm. Um, but you know, we've, we've managed to, uh, to, to come back and, 
and continue by by just changing our game and responding to the challenges of the pandemic. Mm. And and like all of us, I'm guessing that probably there's been some benefit out of some of those redesigned processes that that you'll carry forward oh, after no the pandemic. No doubt, we will be a stronger organization on the other side of the pandemic than we were before. There's no doubt about it in a lot of ways, not just one way. I mean, um, you know, we were always very reluctant, for example, to allow people to work from home. Obviously, the pandemic changed our philosophy on working from home entirely. Um, I mean, there are a lot of areas like that where we're a different organization today and, and a better organization as a, as a result. So I think that's true. Hmm. All right. So, what what do you see as um, the future for this whole science and 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 the technology that's always evolving? Um, how do you see that um, enabling some some things that perhaps are not in place, or some things that maybe even you're not even envisaging right now? Well, um, this, this will become more and more accessible. It will become more abundant. It will become cheaper. Uh, I mean, it's like any other area. Um, you know, it's still nascent. It's still early days. It's got a fantastic future. Um, you know, I, I think, um, in the future, uh, increasingly rather than coming into a lab like ours, you'll recruit a piano. And they will have their own devices like Fitbits and Apple Watches and things like that. And there will be biometrics that are being collected in those devices, which with their permission, you know, those respondents will supply to you as they watch your, your content. And, you know, um, this is only going to become more and more accessible uh, as we go into and, and scalable as we go into the future. So, um, uh, I, I think that, that for clients, it's still an intimidating technology. You know, um, people feel like a little bit uh, defenseless, like, you know, like they don't want to be standing up in the boardroom having to explain these measures. And, and I think that's a, a fair concern. Um, but increasingly, once people come to terms with the power of the measures and just how much more, you know, how much how much greater the utility is with what we're getting out of these measures, I think increasingly people will be embracing it and overcoming their you know, their, their learning curves to kind of like come to, come to terms with, uh, with the opportunities. Mm, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you know, all these devices that we have right now that, that certainly, you know, you, you mentioned the Fitbits or the, the fitness watches that, that can now measure heart rate and, um, skin temperature and, um, blood pressure and what else can they measure? I think that there's one now that can actually do, um, diabetes or sugar without actually penetrating the skin or something so there's all these things happening and of course a lot of those um physiological attributes or measures are things that are impacted by our emotion absolutely 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 it's not the way that people think about using it usually they're thinking mm. about using it for their training or something yeah. along those lines but certainly there are other things that you could do with it along the lines that, that we're talking about today. Mm, fantastic. All right, well, we could go on digging even deeper into this, but I'm guessing that um, we probably very quickly go down the rabbit hole of a lot of uh, scientific um, stuff that might not necessarily be of interest to the listener, but I, 
I do want to explore a little bit, you know, we talked about advertising. Is there a place for this kind of um, thinking in a small business that's publishing a lot of content online, whether that's say, training courses or whether that's um, videos or content that they're sharing? Of course, of course. I mean, again, it, it goes back to the question of, of the um, objective. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I think impacts everybody who's trying to understand communication of whatever form is that generally the kinds of measures that we've had available to us um, look at the effect in aggregate. In other words, we say, okay, like, let's say we were going to test this podcast here again, you know, you might have some questions at the end. What did you think of this? You know, was it a good episode? Did you like the guests? You're looking at the effect in totality, right? Hmm. Um, what is great about these measures is you're getting a continuous measure. In other words, you are seeing what happens second by second. So hmm. if this particular segment, in fact, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the shows that I was analyzing, uh, one of the sports shows that I was analyzing for uh, ESPN had a, a, a sportscaster who would sometimes get political in his, um, in his telecast. And um, in this one episode, he's dealing with racism in sports and he's talking about racism in sports. And the survey responses, people say, this is great. I mean, who's, who's going to say that they don't think that, you know, I mean, they're going to look like a racist if they say that's not a good segment. <laughs> Right. So they're, they're not going to dog that. But the biometric data told us that African-American and white viewers both were massively turned off and their engagement dropped. And where African-Americans returned at the end of the segment, the white viewers did not. So the rest of the show suffered as a consequence of that segment. And so you're able to see something that you just could not see any other way. Mm. Um, and, and that's what's so so powerful about it. So no matter what it is we do, um, these are measures which, because they show us the moving parts and not just the final result, you know, they're really powerful. I, I, I like to think of it as an input metric. So normally what we're looking for is an output metric, like what effect did it have? But we don't know what the contributions were of all the different inputs that went into that. This gives us the input metrics around all the different parts that have gone into it. Mm. Yeah, well, it's... It's kind of like what I'd call a leading versus lagging indicator in the sense that yeah, you know, you're seeing point. you're seeing it happen right now and yeah. versus at the end when you realize somewhere along the line we've lost half our audience. I wonder why that was. Right. A, a great example then, of this also, and, and especially the conflict between what people say and, and how they really, you know, the most interesting study that I've done in terms of that conflict, the conflict between the rational and emotional self was the 2016 presidential debates. So this was Hillary Clinton and, um, and Donald Trump. And um, we tested with Republicans, we tested with Democrats, and we tested with um, independents, undecided voters. Um, amazing data, incredible data. The, one of the most interesting bodies of data I've had the, 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 the benefit as a researcher of studying um, because, uh, you know, first of all, what was incredible about it was just how much Democrats really hated Hillary. And it really showed mm. in the data. She would start to talk and the negatives among Democrats would skyrocket. We were looking at the data and we thought there must be a mistake because this is the pattern that we see when you see somebody who's reacting to the opponent, not to your candidate, you know, 
Um, what was also really interesting was uh, looking at how people habituate to Trump. So Trump says the most ludicrous, crazy thing the first time, and there's a really, really, really strong reaction. And the second time, there's a strong reaction, but it's just not as intense. Pretty soon it's become normal, and people are hardly even reacting to these things when he's saying them. But the most interesting part of the research was the undecided voters. And what was fascinating about the undecided voters was in the survey data, they were telling us that they thought Hillary won the debate. But the emotional data was all Trump. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things that was really interesting, for example, with the undecided voters, the, where normal, uh, where supporters would drop anytime there was a serious policy discussion, they'd be bored anytime there was a policy discussion. Undecided voters were really peaking. That, that's what they were there for. So they start talking policy. Undecided voters are really tuning in. And the, um, what was fascinating about it was when Hillary was talking, she would become evasive when she was asked a policy question, or she would immediately start talking above everybody's head, going into, you know, technocrat. Mm. And Trump was very good at being very decisive. So he would say, in my first hundred days, and you could see that that was really connecting very, very effectively with the undecided voters. So we reached this conclusion at the end where we said, look, rationally, this debate is all Hillary. Emotionally, it's all Trump. And historically, um, don't underestimate the emotion. Now, mm. you know, it's, it's a debate. It's not the election. You're analyzing the debate. But what it was really, what it was really speaking to is that it was not the one-sided, um, you know, uh, landslide that the market was telling yeah. that actually Trump did much better than people realized because of his, hmm. um, you know, because both of his and Hillary's kind of like emotional dynamic. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think that's a great example of, um, and, and there's plenty of um, ones, I know the last couple of elections here in Australia, where the election pundits, the election observers that were doing surveys and even the parties themselves that do their own surveys to determine you know, how we're doing with the electorate and where's our standing um, was so wrong. You know, the, the outcome of yeah. the actual poll was completely different. And I think that's certainly what happened with that 2016 election that um, nobody really expected Trump to win it, although I, I kind of had a feeling that he would win it, but, and maybe it was because I was reading some of those other uh, currents. <laughs> yeah. Well, for our part, we were at conferences saying it's not a landslide. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is a very, very, very tight election, and here's why. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The, I mean, the, your earlier example about um, the sports broadcaster and and bringing in that politics and i'm you know i'm just speculating here that uh, probably people actually generally agreed with the sentiment around you know eradicating racism from sport but then the challenge becomes why are people turning off there is it simply that you know we're here to listen to sport and enjoy the sporting spectacle we you know we'll go somewhere else if we want to have a political debate about racism or whatever yeah, or that's that's the challenge be. then isn't it to determine yeah. well, what's the underlying yeah. reason i mean it's, it was just an example to illustrate that these measures give us exposure to mm. things that we can't see otherwise and that's one of the reasons why they're so powerful mm. 
All right, fantastic. Well, I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. And I ask the same five questions of every guest. It's sure. the idea is to get some tips from your experience, your extensive experience, and inspire the listener to go and do something awesome as a result of your answers today. So you're all set? Sure, let's do it. What's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? research <laughs> it should be obvious um yeah you can't you can't uh conquer new ground that that's on you know un unknown uncharted territory without doing the research and it surprises me how people continue to to think that they can get there by doing that um you know a great example of this is um interactive tv interactive tv has been around since before the internet i mean at least before the mass internet as we understand it since 1977. Mm -hmm. And it's still elusive and it shouldn't be because the technology is there. But the reason is because people don't do research around it. They just keep tinkering, thinking that they can tinker their way to it. You can't. It's, it's a new medium. It has its own unique challenges. You need to understand it. You need to do research. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's a really good example. You know, there's, there's things that have been around for a while. People have kind of tried them out and, They've been successful, but they haven't taken off and um, we kind of park them and forget about them. All right. What's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? The best thing was hiring software engineers. Um, <laughs> a research firm does not usually have software engineers on staff. Normally you have, you know, um, statisticians, psychologists, uh, you know, uh, people who have PhDs and, um, you know, that, that relate to the measures that you're dealing with. And certainly, you know, that's the normal profile of our team. But we also have these amazing software engineers and they're, they're the people who build us the tools that we need. Um, and some of them, you know, use AI and machine learning to do it and others just use traditional programming language. But, but the team of software engineers that we have are just phenomenal. And we have not had a single occasion occur where we haven't gone to them and said, build us X where they didn't build it and, and surpass our expectations. So it's, it's made a huge difference to us as a company in terms of what our capabilities were, because we were never dependent upon what the market could supply us, what vendors could supply us. We've always had the ability to build the tool that we need ourselves. Mm, yeah, that's fantastic. And I was, um, I was in a conversation the other day with someone and a young fellow, and he was advising other young people. He said, you know, if you want to go into a career today, become a software engineer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's, yeah. there's a great future there. Hmm. Okay. Do you have a favorite resource you use most often? You know, um, we have a lot of, of tools that we use. The one that really stands out for me is Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O, which is um, kind of project management software. Um, the reason that I love Trello is because, um, you know, anytime we introduce something new, it's hard for people to kind of like adopt it. You know, you look at the adoption and you can tell sometimes it's very painful getting people mm -hmm. to kind of like, you know, get their practice and their culture kind of like around that new tool. Trello takes instantly. So these are like index cards that are arranged in columns. And you, you, you have tasks and you, you can move them through different columns, you know, as, as the, as, as you move across. But, but it's really powerful because those, those tiles are programmable. So for example, our, our programmers love working in, in, um, I think it's GitHub. And this is a very, very, very geeky 
foreign thing for programmers and they love working on an environment. Everybody else hates it. Nobody else understands it. Nobody can touch it, but they love it. So what we allow them to do is we, these tiles, because they're programmable, they can interface with, with GitHub. And so as the programmers do something, they, they hit their achievement box or whatever, and it automatically populates in, in Trello. And um, so there's just so many tools like that that we use uh, for managing our projects. We've loved Trello. It's a great product and it's free. So it doesn't get much better than free. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the idea of having those index cards and, and also the Kanban, the Kanban layouts. I mean, I use um, some other tools. I've, I've stopped using Trello because I've got other tools now that I use, but I'm still very much in this concept of the index cards and the, the, um, the Kanban board and moving things between columns yeah. and setting it it's, up. It's yeah. how I, I survived grad school. My whole grad school was a room <laughs> full of cards all over the floor at any point in time. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, what's the best way to keep a project on track? Well, we constantly tackle projects that are impossible. You know, I mean, when we start <laughs> the project, they're, they're impossible. And I think the challenge is to always see the end in the beginning and work your way backwards. So you have to start from some grand impossible goal, and then you have to think of a hook into that goal. And then the question becomes, how do you deliver that? And then you think, okay, what would it take to do that? Then you work your way back. And so rather than thinking in a linear way going forward, which is how we normally kind of like think of a task, I think it's actually more effective going the other way where you start at the end product and you work your way back just through through lots of, 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 of stages of deliverables to figure out kind of like how to translate something big and impossible into lots and lots and lots of little bite-sized pieces. Mm, I love it. Um, and it does require you to kind of get really clear on the outcome, doesn't it? And if you think about it, if you look at things that exist, things that you've achieved, and then look at, well, how did I get there? And retro engineer that to use a jargon um, that often gives you a clue of how might I go about a similar project absolutely absolutely you you know there there is something about um, you know once you go down a, a path you have developed some skills along the way and the next time you go down a similar path it's a lot easier to do because you're not you're not kind of like feeling your way around as much definitely hmm all right. And the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Well, <laughs> our problem, that's the opposite of our problem. <laughs> we, we, we only differentiate ourselves. Like we can never not differentiate ourselves. And often we have to, you know, my biggest problem is we're usually inventing a tool that already exists. And I turn to the team and I'm like, why are we doing this? <laughs> Let's just use the existing product, you know? Um, I, I think for us, the, the problem has less been about differentiation. It's actually been more about scalability. And it's been more about taking a lot of differentiation and trying to figure out how to normalize it, um, you know, which is really more of a marketing problem than anything. Um, so, uh, so, so we kind of have the reverse problem, I think. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I asked this question in terms of, you know, there's, there's this um, element of marketing, you've got to be different. And a lot of the 
people I speak with say, well, just be yourself because by definition you are different. And and so I think what you've said is is in some ways similar to that because just you're saying, you know, we're, we're trying so hard to be different when we don't necessarily need to all the time. Um, but just being ourselves is, is probably the way to differentiate. That's a kumbaya moment there, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Dwayne. This has been absolutely fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you, the work you do, and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today? Sure, sure. So our website is mediascience.com. Um, and the um, what we talked also about our Heart Connect product, which is our qualitative research platform. Um, that's available to anybody in the market. It's, a, it's just software that people can use. Um, and that is at heartconnect.com. Um, H-A-R-K-Connect.com. So those are our two key websites. Okay, and we'll post those links in the show notes. So do you have some parting advice today for our listener? Um, I think whatever it is that you do, this was, this was advice my dad gave me. Um, <laughs> when, when I was going to college, I was doing my undergrad degree first, and I did my undergrad degree in media because um, it was fun, <laughs> and I was going to go to law school. And you have to have a, in, in the U.S., you have to have a bachelor's degree before you can do that. So I thought, well, I might as well do media. I love media. And um, when I was graduating, my dad saw that I was miserable. And he's like, why are you miserable? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to law school. I'm not really that excited about it, but I'm going to do it. And he's like, well, why are you going to do it? And I'm like, because, Dad, I don't want to be poor. <laughs> and he said, well, why do you think you're going to be poor? I said, well, I've got a media degree. Like a media degree, I'm going to be poor. I'm going to be like an artist. And he said, son, if you're best at what you do, you'll never be poor. Hmm. And the advice that he gave me was the advice that led me to continue my, my career in, in media. Um, and I think it's actually right. Whatever it is you do, you know, do it with a view to quality. Do it with a view to doing it at the best of your capacity. And ultimately, um, when you do that, ultimately you'll win and you'll prevail. Um, you know, we, we can't settle and we can't just kind of like live our lives, you know, um, trying to be average and trying to just do things uh, to get by. I think we really need to reach deep within and, and push ourselves to, uh, to deliver at the highest of our capacity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also if you're doing what you're passionate about, it's, it's a lot easier to become the best at that and also to persevere through the times when, you know, you might be challenged. You know, Jürgen, I might add something to that as well, because I think some people don't know what their capacity is. Most people don't know what their capacity is because we have been brought up with, with, with systems that train us into thinking that we mm. don't have greater capacity. You know, the whole idea of a normal distribution curve for your grade, for example, that's a, a horrible evil that we do. We should be, mm. we should be encouraging people to rise to a standard. You know, if, if everybody can get an A, fantastic. You know, we should be a society that's grounded on pushing people to their capacity, not one about putting people in their place and trying to get them to accept that they sit normal, you know, that they sit somewhere within the normal distribution chain. Um, so, you know, there, there, there was this great study at Harvard that I love where um, these uh, researchers from Harvard came to the school and they would tell the teachers, you know, we've developed this test of intelligence. And what we've learned is that just as, as kids go through growth spurts, they also go through intelligence spurts. And we have this test that can measure this. And this is all fiction. This was, none of this was true. 
and they would give the test and they would randomly select a student and they'd go to the teacher and this randomly selected student they would say, oh my God, this student of yours is what we call a bloomer. They will be your top student by the end of the year. They're genius level. They're incredible. And what would happen is at the end of the year, they would administer standardized tests. And sure enough, those students have the highest results. So what that speaks to is it speaks to the depth of human capacity and how all of us are really that that potential is suppressed by the societies that we live in. And so really, if we could come to discover our true selves, our true capacity, you know, the sky's the limit. What we can achieve mm. is phenomenal. And that's that's the, that's a large part of our philosophy at Media Science. A large part of our philosophy is to support our team, to support our staff, to achieve their potential. That's that's what we see our role in management as, nurturing that potential. Mm. Well, that's a wonderful note to finish up on. And I, I sense that there might be a whole other episode just talking about that and um, about how we can realize our full potential and perhaps not um, not assume that we're not as good as the next person, but um, strive to be the best we can be. So thanks for that, Dwayne. Finally, who else should I get on this show and why? Oh, what a great question. Um, who else should you get? I, I have a colleague that I think would make a fantastic guest. Um, her name is Alyssa Moses. Um, she, we, we recruited her. She runs our um, Heart Connect division. Now, Alyssa has an amazing um, pedigree. She's got an amazing history. Um, she used to work in advertising. In fact, um, you know, the Gillette motto, the, you know, the best you can be, um, yeah. the best a man can be. Um, she was instrumental in that. So that was one of the accounts she was working on back in the day. Um, she went on to lead the neuro division at Ipsos. You know, Ipsos is one of the main kind of like mm. marketing market research firms. And, and she was heading up their whole neuro division. Um, so she's an amazing. Now, in addition to the work she does with us at Heart Connect, she also teaches at Columbia University. Um, and she teaches AI and machine learning to those classes. So, so I think she would be a fantastic guest for you with lots of, of, of great insights around innovation. Great. Well, we'll get you to introduce us to Elisa and reach out to her and bring her on the show as well. Looking forward to that too. Well, thanks so much, Dwayne. This has been fun. I've learned a lot about, um, you know, the work you do in terms of uh, measuring instantaneously people's response to um, emotional response to stimuli, <laughs> to put it in a general terms. But uh, how how can we can apply that to learn um, whether we're in advertising, marketing, or just publishing content and wanting to reach people, connect with them, and get their attention. So thanks for all of that. I've really enjoyed it, and hope you have too. All the best for the future, and let's stay in touch. Fantastic. It was tons of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed that really insightful and, and totally engaging conversation with Dwayne and took something away from his episode. Dwayne's work to scientifically measure and interpret responses to what we see hear and feel is absolutely fascinating. I found it fascinating and I really like his final parting comment. If you're the best at what you do, you'll never be poor. I'd love to know what you took away from Duane's episode. 
leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Duane Varan. That is D-U-A-N-E-V-A-R-A-N. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Duane Varan. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Duane, as well as links to the Media Science website, to Duane's social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. If you like this episode, please do share it around. Share it with at least two other people that it might help, because you're doing them a massive favour. And tag me in on that share so that I can reach out to you with a special thank you. Duane suggested that we have a conversation with Elisa Moses of Hark Connect on a future Innova Buzz podcast episode. So Elisa, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the Innova Buzz podcast, courtesy of Duane Varan. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including Stefan Hedebrandt of Dream Data and Kurian Tharakan of Strategy Peak and author of The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember... Be awesome and keep innovating.